uh, fire is what we do. This is our, our ecological signature. This is our species agency. And it's about time we stepped up and started, started doing our job properly. We, we can, but we have to take it seriously. This is our stewardship for the planet. This is what we do uniquely. Welcome to episode three of Living with Fire, a new podcast that aims to deepen our understanding of wildfires and the critical role they play in America's forests, lands, and communities. I'm your host, Amanda Monti, and today you'll be hearing from Stephen Pine, who is without a doubt the foremost expert on fire history in the U.S. He's written dozens of books about the history of fire and fire suppression, and if you've ever worked in wildland fire, there's a good chance you've seen a few copies of Steve's books lying around your station or office. Steve and I covered a wide range of topics in our conversation, but mostly spoke about how our use of fossil fuels and 100 years of fire suppression policies have both contributed to what he calls a modern fire crisis. We also talked a little bit about the big burns of 1910, about bad fires versus good fires, and about how we have spent thousands of years evolving alongside fire. I'll let Steve take it from here, but thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the episode. A few days after I graduated from high school in Phoenix, I got a job at the South Rim of Grand Canyon as a laborer. And while I was there, they had a call from uh, one of the guys on the fire crew in the North Rim, phoned in, said he couldn't come. There I was. They said, uh, asked me if I wanted to go. I said, sure. And uh, so I did that for 15 summers and then later uh, wrote fire plans for the National Park Service for three summers. That got me interested in fire, but I had two completely uh, different lives. And I went on, went on to college, went on to graduate school, never studied fire, never was at a place where fire or natural resources were of particular interest. And then finally decided I needed to put those two lives together. And so uh, that, that has been what I've done ever since. <laughs> So how did that uh, how did that fire experience sort of inform your academic work? I mean, obviously the experience itself probably influenced you actually pursuing uh, becoming a fire historian. But like, I guess in some in what ways did did that on the ground experience make a difference in the ways that you were able to write about fire? Well, I, you know, the when you're on a fire crew, you quickly learn how fire shapes the season. Mm-hmm. If you keep coming back, you learn how seasons can shape a life. And then the next step, being trained as an academic, we're trained to generalize, to think abstractly. Question was, could it be the same for humanity overall? Could fire be a shaping, kind of informing influence? And in that respect, could you write histories that are really centered around fire? So I don't think I could have come to that idea without having been in fire. It wouldn't have occurred to me to make fire central. It would have been, oh, we have these these questions that historians are interested in now. Fire could be an illustration of that. Instead, I make the history about fire. I start with fire and then write the history around it. So I reversed it. I wouldn't have done that had I not had on-the-ground experience. And I think the other thing is that it gave me uh, a way of talking about fire uh, that that would be very hard to teach or to duplicate without having sort of been up close and personal with a lot of fires. And most of our fires were small. They were stag fires was our classic situation. A 300 acre fire was a really, was a big fire for us. Um, 
But you just speak about fires. You don't exactly, uh, I don't exactly personify it. That would be foolish. Mm -hmm. But you sort of animate it. Fire becomes a presence uh, if, if you work around it in ways that would not be true if you're just thinking about it from books or abstractly. So I think there's a way in which I write about it that also characterizes that probably unique. Yeah. Um, and so can you kind of explain your uh, your current project a little bit? I know you were we were discussing the piracy and the concept of piracy the other day. So um, if you could just dive into that a little bit and explain that. Well, actually, I have two projects. Uh, the piracy and I've, I've been gradually sort of abstracting from my my different fire histories. I've had a chance to write them in a number of parts of the world, uh, essays and books. And it it. I've also spent time in Antarctica. I spent a full season in Antarctica. Probably my best book is, is about ice. Uh, and so I've always been interested in the ice age too. And I, be I began to realize that when you add up all the things we're doing with fire, and we human humans are the keystone species for fire. And when you add it all up, what we're doing with living landscapes, but also what we're doing with lithic landscapes, which is what I've come to call fossil fuel burning. We're creating the equivalent of an ice age, a kind of fire-informed ice age. And uh, I call it the pyrocene. And I think it's, it's another way of looking at all the things humans do, what, we're, what most people are calling the Anthropocene. Um, I, because I'm, I'm willing to put fire at the center, make it the narrative axis, then I'm willing to come up with a fire-centered concept. And pyrocene, I think, is a very apt one. It's also another way of getting around um, climate change, because a lot of the climate change debate gets, gets entrenched. Everybody's got their positions and they're arguing and say fire is used for this or that. And, and for me, climate history is now a subset of fire history. And I've always been interested in how our appeal to fossil fuels affects and changes how we manage fire in the landscape. And it does. I mean, we created a fire crisis. It was visible by the 1960s, simply by that transition, without anything dealing with climate. So we've gone from a fire crisis, thanks to the globalizing effect of, of climate change now, uh, to a fire epoch. And... I guess because you mentioned it, could we talk a little bit about that um, that sort of 1960s era? It, it seemed like it was kind of a breaking point in how we were formerly suppressing fires, kind of um, the 10 a.m. rule, all of these things, and kind of where we've evolved from that point and how we've evolved from that sure. point. Yeah, the, the American Fire Program began with a backdrop, not just of good fires, but of really bad fires in the 19th, early 20th century. And so the state felt it had to intervene. It was a global project. So eliminating fire was seen as a universal good. And then during the 1930s, the Civilian Conservation Corps and other emergency programs gave a lot of resources to that. That's when the 10 a.m. policy was, was promulgated. And then after uh, World War II and then Korea, lots of war surplus equipment and wartime experience uh, could be brought to bear on fire, was transferred. So we mobilized even science on it. So we're in a kind of cold war on fire. And then in the 1960s, the consequences of that program become clear. 
there's a lot of ecological deterioration and we're also building up fuels and we can't continue. So there was widespread sense that we were headed for a fire crisis. Uh, so in 1962, the Tall Timbers Research Institution uh, began sponsoring a series of fire ecology conferences, and this provided a forum for all of the critics to come together. It was hugely important. And it's also the same year that Nature Conservancy conducted its first prescribed burn. So there's a sense that the outside of government, there will there will, there could be a response. And it's remarkable how quickly the old establishment collapsed. I mean, it's like watching the Soviet Union implode. One day it's there forever, and the next day it's gone. Uh, so by 1968, the National Park Service had changed its policy to accommodate. That's 50 years ago. And in 1978, the Forest Service followed with a kind of full service, full spectrum overhaul. And so that's over 40 years ago. So these were not new ideas. Um, so by the 60s and 70s, it was part of a general reconsideration of environmental stuff. It was all bipartisan. 1978 is probably the high water mark uh, for fire reforms. Interestingly, that's also the same year that's been identified as the last time climate change was discussed in a kind of neutral uh, format. And then with the 80 election, there's a, a kind of counter-revolution set in motion, which really stalls all of it. And the early 80s were not big fire years. By the end of the 80s, Yellowstone has come into play, uh, and there are uh, California's burning, and there are other big fires around the country, so it changes. And then in 91, uh, Oakland burns, the tunnel fire. So we've got the two polarities of the coming era, the wildland and the urban, and how they, how they are going to play off. So that the, the fire revolution, as I think about it, stalls, uh, that it revives in the after the 94 fire season, uh, South Canyon and first billion dollar suppression year. So we have a common federal fire policy in 95 amended, but still in place. Um, and then a national fire plan at 2000. I mean, here it was 90 years after the big blow up sort of announced the modern, the American way of fire and rehearse the light burning debate. Uh, 90 years later, we can't stop fires in the Northern Rockies. They're right back. Mm -hmm. And now the light burning debate wasn't ended. And uh, the National Park Service loses a fire. It burns into Los Alamos, Cerro Grande fire. So we can't fight fires, we can't light them. So there was a chance that there was something broken. The community accepted that. And then as the new millennium comes, everything just intensifies, you know, bigger fires, mega fires now, uh, mega costs, Forest Service is spending 50% of its budget just on fire suppression. Um, more communities burning, firefighters still dying. Uh, and then uh, with, I think about 10 years ago or so, I think there's another inflection point. So we spent about 50 years trying to take fire out. And then beginning in the 60s, we've spent 50 years trying to put good fires back in with mixed results. And now I think we're looking at hybrids. We're looking at a situation where suppression and prescribed fire can't be separated. Restoration and uh, firefighting are, are merging. We're doing kind of box and burn strategies where burnouts are really a kind of prescribed fire done under urgent conditions 
and that's in a sense how we're getting a lot of burning done. That's a very different model than what had gone on before. We're sort of, if by default, going into a kind of uh, resilience model that we're not going to get ahead of it. It's too late. We lost that chance. The last chance was probably in the 70s and 80s. We didn't make the transition fast enough. Uh, so now I don't think that's even a, that's an option. And I think the other casualty is the sense that science uh, informs and management applies. I don't think science is in a position to do that anymore. We're all playing catch up. Now, you mentioned the resiliency model. Will you explain that to me a little bit, kind of what that looks like in your perspective? I think it's a sense that uh, we're not going to be able to get ahead of it. We're not going to be able to suppress all fires. We know that multiple failures that uh, and we're not going to be able to restore in advance of what's coming at us. So what can we do to live with the fires that are coming at us uh, to get as much good fire as we can to dampen as fully as we can the bad fires and to try to create landscapes that will be able to accept worsening conditions as we evolve into a pyrocene. Uh, in a sense, the longer we keep fire out of many of these places, the worse it's going to be. So how do we get it in? That's, that's, a, that's a different model of management. It's a different model of a different relationship to science. It's certainly a long way away from the 10 a.m. policy or even the policy of fire by prescription, mm -hmm. because that assumes that there, you can identify the place, you can arrange, you can manage it, you can do it in advance under your terms. I don't think we're setting the terms anymore. And talking to fire officers over the last dozen, oh, 10 years or so, I, I don't see many who believe that that we can. I mean, I think I think that game that that ship is gone. Hey guys, just wanted to take a quick second to talk about our sponsor, Mystery Ranch Backpacks. Every crew that I've worked on in fire has used Mystery Ranch's line gear, which means I've probably spent more time with one of their packs over the last four summers than I have with my family and friends. And they don't just make fire packs; they've also got packs for hunting, backpacking, climbing, and I've also used their backcountry ski pack for the last two seasons of skiing around Mount Baker. After all that time spent with a Mystery Ranch pack on my back. I can confidently say that their packs are not only durable and comfortable, but some of the best backpacks in the industry. Learn more and check out their lineup of great packs at mysteryranch.com. Yeah, so I was hoping to maybe take it back and talk about the 1910 fires a bit, but I am curious about sort of how the 1910 fires ended up informing Forest Service policy in the early 1900s. And also kind of if those fires were from your research or from what you've been able to dig up largely caused by human intervention in like the 1800s. Those are great questions. The 1910 fires, the great fires, the big blow up, the big burn. It's very rare in my experience to find in history one event that sort of crystallizes everything and becomes a foundation story. But those fires were. Mm -hmm. So part of it is that they were big three and a quarter million acres in the Northern Rockies, a complex of fires. Um, but they also had a young organization to interact with. So Canada had larger fires north of 49, but um, there were no institutions uh, to grapple with it. So we have a young forest service uh, filled with, uh, you know, a single generation of young guys who come out of forestry school mostly. 
uh, and they were uh, ready to be influenced. They were ready to grapple with it. Um, 78 firefighters die. Uh, it's a, a big shock. Uh, that occurred over six incidents, uh, essentially on, on the first day. Um, there was no workers' comp. There was no. There was no sense that you would lose. You would have a, a crisis like that. No way to handle it. Uh, it completely overwhelmed the agency. Um, the, it was the first crisis faced by the new chief forester, uh, Henry Graves, who was replacing Pinchot, who had been fired earlier in the year for insubordination. So the agency feels itself under political attack. Uh, the next three chiefs of the Forest Service all the way through 1939 were all personally on the fire line. So this is th this is a great sort of valley forge or long march for that generation. Um, and it was always the, the marker for them. So that's the suppression side, but the same month, August, uh, controversy boils out in California uh, called light burning. And it was an argument that this whole approach was wrong. The European model was inappropriate. The sort of paramilitary model uh, that the army had developed for Yellowstone was wrongheaded. We needed to emulate the American Indian. And we should be out, certainly in these montane forests, burning routinely, light burning, and that would prevent uh, big fires and it would make for healthier forests. And then in fact, all they predicted what would happen if we continued to uh, suppressed fire and everything they predicted 1910 has come has come to pass mm. so that's 1910 is really a critical moment um, and in some ways we're still living with it i mean all of the questions uh the, the call out the national call out the uh, appeal to the army to intervene that was all there uh, what to do with salvage logging big question the country is glutted with wood i mean the, 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 the Timber industry is being destroyed by overcutting. So are we going to cut now on 3 million more acres uh, and blood it? What to do about rehabilitation? Uh, how do we manage that? Uh, what about replanting? What about stabilization? All of these questions, all of that it was all laid out in 1910. Um, and it was a mix. This is part of what makes it fascinating. It wasn't all naturally caused fires burning in natural conditions. Uh, many of the worst fires were set by railroads. Many of them were around areas that had been recently logged. A lot of it along a new railroad line uh, across the Rockies. So lots of disturbed land on both sides, the trains throwing sparks every which way. Um, that tied up a lot of firefighting resources, made it more difficult to find and get to fires in the backcountry. So it was a mix. It's an interaction of people and nature with fire as the medium. Which, which I think is the, the true story. That was part of the backdrop. Why, why did we take such an aggressive approach to fire? Because you have this, this scene where uh, that cries out for some political intervention. I mean, we're wasting resources, we're killing people, we're burning over towns. Uh, we went through all of that and then we managed to, to shut it off. And then we forgot and we forgot what what the lessons were. And so things grow back. Towns grow up. Now we have a new wave of colonization, not by agriculture and logging, but by urbanites mm -hmm. sprawling out from large cities. And uh, that set up the conditions for another wave of settlement fires. So I see our 
wooey fire, stupid name, but we're stuck with it. I see our wooey fires as sort of an echo of what we went through in the 19th, early 20th century. And we can learn from that. You know, how did we, how did we end that? We ended that by uh, better control. Uh, we ended that by uh, zoning, uh, getting people out of uh, marginal areas where the farming isn't going to work. Don't, don't go in there. Uh, a lot of it went to public lands after uh, areas were cut over and burned over and then abandoned. There were lots of things. Uh, and we also had a history of urban fires uh, because our cities were made out of the same things as our forests. They were basically reconstituted forests and they burned the same way. And we learned to stop that. And then we forgot about it. So I look at the wooey uh, urban fire returning. This is like having measles or polio come back. You know, we solved that problem. We fixed it. And then we forgot. And in some ways, we misdefined it. We didn't think we were talking about urban fire because we want to be out living in the woods close to nature. So in some ways, it, it got defined by the wildland fire community, which makes it a difficult problem to solve. If it had been defined as essentially an urban fire problem, it's pretty easy what we do. It's an urban fire with funny landscaping rather than wildlands with houses mixed in. So in a sense, had we defined it, the had picked up the other end of that stick, I think we would be a lot further along. And so that's why you're kind of at odds with the wooey term? <laughs> oh, I just think it's a dumb, geeky term. I, I mean, you know, it's like naming this wildfire the bushfire. Really? This is your formal name, a campfire. Come on. Uh, it's just, I, I realize that, you know, they were using rural urban, they were using other kinds of things, wildland urban interface. I mean, this is, this is by uh, computer guys uh, who are thinking about stuff. And that's fine as, an, as a metaphor, but we got stuck with it. And, uh, you know, it's too bad we couldn't have come up with something else. And wooey and the rest of these things. I mean, it sounds like something out of Dr. Seuss. I mean, really, uh, it's hard to take it seriously. Mm -hmm. And you needed a classier term. This is a case where the language could have could have mattered. If we come up with with a smarter term for it, we could have might have helped a little bit. But ultimately, these are political issues. I mean, they deal with matters of public safety, public assets. They're legitimately political issues, and that's really what what is lacking now is getting the politics right, not just the policy, but the politics. I mean, I can't see that doing more research is going to change how we understand and what we need to do to fix it. Um, we, we understand more than enough to mm -hmm. repair. And there are lots of little things you can do. Um, it's not an argument to quit doing research. It's always interesting, but we know more than enough to be able to take, take action. And what is that sort of call to action in your perspective? Um, what kind of policies should we be seeking and what kind of maybe changes in public perception should we be seeking? Well, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of research. Uh, historical evidence suggests that uh, the biggest payoff is hardening your structures mm -hmm. against embers. And that doesn't mean you have to rebuild everything. It means being selective you know, getting combustibles away from combustible uh, housing structures and porches uh, and walkways, um, 
getting rid of wooden roofs, um, just getting meshing for attics that that are, are small enough that they're not going to blow in embers. Uh, you know, getting getting the right kind of windows. All of these things are don't require billions of dollars. They require a lot of small actions, and that could be subsidized fairly fairly easily. Because when you get a few houses going, that quickly overwhelms the urban fire service. And uh, so they then it just becomes a house fire. Well, why are we still having house fires? Because we thought they had gone away and we didn't need to take the kinds of measures that had stopped that kind of fire in the 19th and early 20th century. So I think that that's a fairly simple thing. Uh, I think we can we can think about sort of protective barriers around communities. In the 19th century, they would have been farmed and grazed. Uh, so they would have been cultivated. They would have been cleared in various ways. What would be the equivalent now? Well, maybe it's green belts. Maybe it's parklands. Maybe low density recreation. Uh, some thinning would be appropriate. Uh, it's not primarily a wildland fire problem, but certainly we can reduce the intensity of the amber attacks a bit. We can thin that out. Uh, there are lots of things to do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it doesn't, re it's not, you know, it, it's not like so this is some kind of alien visitation and right. we have no analog for it. We have lots of history, lots of analogs. Yeah. So I, I did want to circle back on the language that we need to be using when we're talking about wildfire. It sort of seems like you know, I think the the Forest Service and a lot of agencies kind of are trying to take this like this positive spin on uh, on wildfire suppression and like the ways that we can maybe anticipate um, and adapt ourselves to wildfires in the future. Um, and I'm I sense a little bit more urgency in the way that you talk about wildfire. I guess if you could explain that dynamic a little bit and also just talk about the importance of using uh, of like the language that we use when we're talking about about wildfires. Well, we have basically two tropes. If you pardon the literary expression, are two frames, journalist frames for dealing with fire. One is fire is disaster. Mm -hmm. And fire can be a disaster, but not every fire is a disaster. Uh, in some cases, the, the omission of fire is, is the disaster, the ecological harm. The other version is the, the firefight itself is a battlefield and sort of the military metaphor. And that has served us very poorly. Uh, we're not really at war with fire. And defining it that way is really dumb because if we're at war with fire, three things are going to happen. We're going to spend a lot of money, we're going to take a lot of casualties, and we're going to lose. And that's not very helpful. Uh, on the other hand, living with fire doesn't exactly communicate what that means. And I think we've got to be very selective. We've got to be sensitive and protective of the communities that are at risk. And there are a lot of things we can do. There are bad fires out there, and we want to pr protect communities from those bad fires. On the other hand, uh, there are also a need for good fires, and good fires can help uh, prevent bad fires. So in some respects, it's a really crummy analogy maybe, but you know, fire is a contagion phenomenon. It behaves the same way that our, our ongoing pandemic does. It depends on the intensity of the source and the receptivity of of the sinks, uh, you know, we can harden our houses. That's wear masks, guys. Uh, we can we can uh, practice social distancing. Well, that's defensible space, isn't it? 
I mean, it's pretty much the same thing. Uh, herd immunity isn't that getting getting enough good fires that the bad fires don't spread, um, you know. But it's not going away, and the big difference there is that there's no vaccine for fire. And even if there was, we couldn't apply it universally because many places are going to need fire. So, we have managed to live with fire almost all all of our existence as a species until the last hundred. 150 years, and then things have really come unhinged. And so what is that difference? I think that that lines up pretty closely to the emergence of fossil fuel as an alternative source of firepower for humans. And then how those two inter interact is really the, the deep driver of art. That for me has become the big narrative now. Uh, because we're taking stuff out of the geologic past, we're burning it in the present, we're releasing all its effluent into the geologic future. We're going to be living with this for a long time. And it's not just climate change, because that organizes our fossil fuels have organized how we live in society, how we have societies. We couldn't have these exurbs if we were still living in a pre-industrial society. Uh, we, we wouldn't have, I, I mean, I love the way, I, I, I don't, Love it. it. It's horrifying. But it's a great example of how the two worlds collide when power lines start so many, so many of our megafires now that then threaten communities. Well, the power lines are often near the communities, so that makes sense. This, this, is, this is an ongoing thing. It is not going away. I think whether we want to call this a pyrocene or not, we are into a fire epoch that where fire is going to be far more prominent uh, in all of its forms. And we're going to be living with it. Even if we shut off fossil fuel combustion tonight, it's going to take decades, probably a couple of centuries before the climate can readjust to what it was. And we still have all of the way, if we, if we quit burning gasoline uh, and diesel, we would still have the structure of, of a society and its geography that was created when that was possible. So if we, run cars off batteries, we're st we still have that problem baked in to the mm -hmm. way we live on the landscape. All of which suggests to me, fire is going to be ever larger and the choice is going to be what kind of fire? I mean, fires of choice or fires of chance uh, to, to oversimplify it a bit, uh, but fire is not going away. It's good to get that climate change angle in there and the fossil fuel angle because that is such a huge, a huge question I've been getting in my sort of semi research of this topic and of the podcast is how is climate change affecting all of this? And in reality, it's kind of just they're all it's, it's braided together. It's it's not really that one is affecting the other. They're interacting, but for me, climate climate history has now become a subset of fire history. Mm -hmm. So we remain the keystone species and. If we, how we burn or live with living landscapes depends on how we interact with these with these lithic landscapes. If you'll pardon the somewhat awkward alliteration, on that. So, uh, climate change is real, but you know this, this goes back to us as fire creatures. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, and there are lots of other things that 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 affect fire, land use, and the rest. But when you trace those back, almost all of those go back to a fossil fuel economy and a fossil fuel organized geography so i don't want the whole debate to get hijacked by climate change because right. i want let's go to the source 
they have a common source ourselves when we decided to burn things differently. And climate is one manifestation and that affects how fires are going. But even before climate change became an issue or was measurable, uh, back in the 1960s, we recognized we had a fire crisis, which was caused by all the other stuff. So just a very simple example. Suppose we took away all our fossil fuel powered firefighting hardware. We took away the helicopters and the air tankers. We took away uh, bulldozers and graders. We took away all of our trucks and our engines and the trucks that carry our crews and the bulldozers and graders that make the roads that allow us to carry the crews. And we took away our chainsaws and we took away our pumps. How would we deal with these fires? Could we pretend that we could suppress these fires with a counterforce? No. What would we do? We would burn. We would back off and we would be systematically managing that landscape with fire and fire interacting with other kinds of technologies. That's a profound point. Yeah, that, that's, that's a really good point. Um, it's really interesting to think about it that way. And kind of a good thing to, a good way to think about moving forward and how we can move forward. That's like, that's a great analogy. Um, and in that kind of realm, do you know of any, uh, this is actually not entirely in that realm at all, but I'm curious if you know of any, uh, any forests, any communities, or even any agencies, if you feel like speaking to that, that are kind of doing things right, that are kind of moving in that direction in a, in a, in a greater way than, um, than other places or other agencies? Well, I think all the agencies have the idea. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just that some have different cultures to deal with. Some have different kinds of fire problems. Uh, I mean, part of it, the big disturbance in the forest is clearly California. And mm -hmm. California's situation, may, we may just have to accept that it's fundamentally irrational that you have a nature which is born to burn and born to burn explosively. And then you have a society that is determined to live in this place regardless and is going to push itself out and then expects that fire agencies are going to intervene between them and buffer. And that sort of could work for a while, but now there's less and less room to buffer. They're, they're right up, you know, cheek to jowl. And, uh, the agencies cannot do it. We cannot pretend that. And that may be, there may be things you can ameliorate in the California scene, but it may be that it is fundamentally irrational. And that is historically baked into the scene. And that's it. But that doesn't have to be the way it is in Oregon or Montana or Georgia. And they're all going to have, uh, we're, we're a federation of states, but we're also a confederation of regions. And the regions all have different fire problems and different responses. And we need to think um, in particular terms. I mean, we forget the Northeast had huge fires. Mm -hmm. When the 1903 fire burned, complex burned 600,000 acres in the Adirondacks. And then came mm -hmm. back in 1908, burned again, all through the Northeast in Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, were all burning, uh, Massachusetts. So we all have different, we all have different her heritage. We have different cultural responses to fire. We all have different, different environments. And we get in trouble when we try to create a single response that suppression, we can do this across the boards or all we have to do, Florida has shown us the way, all we have to do is prescribe fire 
and you know it will all take care of itself and it won't that's not going to work they're going to need mixtures of things they're going to have to be adapted to particular circumstances but as far as your comment on language i think the idea of good fire bad fire with a small amount of definition can work for people and make clear that the promotion of good fire is not is not um, an attempt to avoid talking about bad fires. There really are bad fires out there. There are disastrous fires. Mm -hmm. uh, there are pretty serious firefights. I don't like the battlefield metaphor is, is a wrong one. But you know, these are serious engagements and they deserve to be treated as such. But those are not universal. So good fire, bad fire, I think is probably the best way we have forward. And I think the public can get that. I mean, there's a certain amount of the public that doesn't want to get it. There's just a certain amount of blowhards and loudmouths who are just going to sound off regardless and people who are going to try to score points off it. But most of the public, I think, will respond to that, present it in a serious way and say, look, these are the limits of what we can do. And this is what we are doing to make you safe and put our natural estate in, into better shape and make it more resilient against all the insults that are yet to come. That's it for our third episode of Living with Fire. Thanks to Steve for coming on the show, and thanks to you for listening. My one ask for you today is to share this podcast with one friend who you think might like it, whether that's someone who works in fire, enjoys public lands, or lives in a fire-prone area. My hope is that they'll enjoy learning more about fire and the way we interact with it. Signing off for now. Hope to catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening.